Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let me preface this by saying that I don't live in a safe place. I live in a very urban part of Russia where crime and police brutality are high, especially with the war happening right now. Tensions are high between police and civilians, anti-war activists, etc. I've had it ingrained with me the fact that as a single 24-year-old female, it's dangerous for me to go out, wear what I want, express myself, and above all else, feel safe. That's just not a luxury we have here. I've heard it similar in other countries, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, this all happened about four months ago. I found myself desperately craving a coffee and one of those personal apple pies. Don't judge me, they're really good. I live about four blocks from the nearest grocery store and it wasn't quite dark out, so I thought, hey, I'll walk. I live alone and don't have a particularly close family, so I'm pretty much on my own most times, which is how I like it, to be honest. I grab my purse, which had maybe 500 rubles in it, that's our currency here, my phone and some other miscellaneous items, one of which was my pepper spray. Just in case anything were to happen, I'd at least have that on me. It was nearing dusk. I knew I had to start my journey soon, so that when I left the store, it wouldn't be too dark out. I left my house and as I walked down the streets, I realized that they weren't too populated. I'm sure that this had to do with the time and the fact of what happens once the sun goes down here. Crime tends to be rampant in my city. Assaults, robberies, even murders. The police don't do too much about it because, well, why would they? I walked briskly to the store, which now that I'm thinking about it, wasn't even really a grocery store. It's more of a convenience store. I was in and out within a matter of minutes, and that's when I spotted a man across the street. He was tall, skinny, rat-like in a way, and had his hands in his pockets as it looked like he was trying to blend into the scenery. I think I saw him prior to walking into the store because he seemed vaguely familiar, but I pushed it out of my head and began the trek home. I was keen to stay alert on this walk. I gripped my purse, the grocery bag, and my pepper spray firmly, while still keeping it concealed. By this point, the sun had set much faster than I expected. It wasn't quite pitch black out, but close to it. The streets illuminated by the dying street lamps cast an eerie yellow glow every few feet. About two minutes into the walk, I turned over my shoulder because... I had this strange feeling of eyes being trained on me. And wouldn't you know, that same man was now following me. He was about 20 paces behind me, but he was now on my side of the road. I could feel my body tensing up, and I began to acknowledge my nerves. 
adrenaline at the beginning stages of pumping as I tried to maintain composure within. As I turned back and continued my walk, I thought for just a moment that maybe I was overreacting. Perhaps this guy was homeless or something. I kid you not, as I was kicking that idea around in my head, I hear the slapping of feet on the cement, and I turn to see this guy is now rushing me. In one swoop, I drop my purse and grocery bag as I bolt and leap into the light of the nearest street lamp, treating the flickering luminosity as if it were a safe haven of sorts. This man stops just outside of the glow, but doesn't step in. Instead, he mutters something under his breath, reaching into his pocket and grabbing a face mask. He puts it on, steps into the light, and just keeps walking. At this point, I'm in the middle of the road because there was no way I was getting anywhere near that guy on the sidewalk. I only caught a glimpse of his face, or rather, what wasn't covered by his mask. Dark, curly hair, very sharp features, a pronounced brow, and thick eyebrows. I don't know what color eyes he had, his age, or even what he was wearing. It all happened so fast. The only thing I did retain about him was the strangeness he had about his face. He had a very, very toned face, and not in a muscular sort of way. He was angular, seemed almost like a Picasso-type figure or something. I waited there in the street until he turned down a side alley and slinked away. I then took this opportunity to run all the way home, opting for a different route, lest that man was still lying in wait down that alley. Fast forward maybe a month or two later, I'm walking down the street, different location, and pass a newspaper stand. From the corner of my eye, I see a headline that in big bold letters says something about human trafficking, and there were several photos attached. I see the faces of various suspects, and as my eyes scrolled down the lineup, I immediately began to feel sick. There was a photo of him, that man from several weeks prior. Eventually I was able to read the article and found out that he, along with several other men, were abducting young women around the city, holding them for days or weeks on end before selling them off. To whom? I don't know, nor do I want to. I haven't walked by myself anywhere at night since this experience. I've also gotten myself a dog, a giant English mastiff who I've named Shesliwi, which roughly translates to lucky, as an homage to just how lucky I got that night. I'm not really sure how to begin this, but I'll try to be as brief and as concise as possible. Summer of 2004, my family was supposed to vacation in Kennebunkport, Maine. My father was stuck in meetings, so he was going to come up from Manhattan a few days after us. My mom wanted to drive up, super annoying to me at the time, but we didn't have a choice, and my brother, sister, and I loaded into the car and started the drive. I remember being about 14 at the time. Drive was uneventful, but there were various delays and we ended up getting in a lot later than originally planned. Because of this, the owners of the house we were renting had turned in for the night and we weren't able to get a hold of them to get the keys. 
Sounds like horrible planning, but apparently they were pretty strict about the time frame with which to pick up the keys. My mom, unfazed, decided she wanted lobster, so we went to one of our favorite spots. She called my father from the restaurant to see if he could make us reservations at a hotel while we ate. We were enjoying the lobster when a guy came up and began chatting with my mom. I figured it was just a friendly local making conversation. During this, my dad calls my mom and my mom excuses herself to speak to him. Apparently all hotels were booked for the night. Go figure. Had a vacation season, I suppose. The plan was for us to drive to the nearest town and just find somewhere to stay until we could pick up the keys for our vacation home. Apparently... That local fella had been listening into my mom's conversation and came back over once she got off the phone. I want to say, there was nothing outwardly off about him. He was preppy, clean-cut, unassuming, and fit in with the clientele. He told my mom he had a big home with a big guest house. We were more than welcome to stay at, and his wife wouldn't mind. Immediately, my reaction was F that. There's no way in the world I'm staying in a random dude's house in creepy Maine. No offense to anyone from Maine, but the streets did get creepy. My mom, doing her due diligence, determined this guy was legit, said he was in finance, and they chatted enough for my mom to determine he wasn't totally full of it. I called my dad in hysterics. He said I was overreacting, and that I needed to get out of the city more, and accept that sometimes people are just nice. So my brother, sister, mother, and I got back into our car and followed this man back to his house. The guest house was really nice, fully furnished, but the beds were oddly placed. The guest house had two bedrooms, and instead of the beds being located in the middle or centered, they were right under the window of each room. Just seemed odd to me. Anyway, fast forward. We're all getting ready to go to bed. My mom hears a knock on the door and it's the guy. He said he just wanted to check to make sure we got settled. Cool. Nice thing to do. About 30 minutes later, he comes back to check in again. At this point, my mom was like, thanks, we're good. We'll stop by the house in the morning to say thank you. We'll fast forward another 30 to 45 minutes. I can't sleep. I'm terrified. We hear this rustling which is odd because the guest house was nowhere near trees or in close proximity to bushes that might make such a noise. At this point, I see my mom wide awake and look up at the window, like motioning towards the window with her eyes. Let me add, none of the windows had curtains. The guy said it's because his wife was in the process of redecorating. Well, when I looked up, there was a male figure in the window just standing. I thought I was going to have a heart attack right then and there. I didn't know how long he had been there for, and this just prompted me to lie still like a mannequin. Once he had walked away, my mom waited for a moment and then told us to get our stuff together. She wasn't messing around. We had my dad on the phone at this point. He was pretty much flipping out at my mom about something, but I didn't hear what. My mom said she was going to put stuff in the car and to follow her out. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? Ew, seriously. They squeeze the grease out of the wool and process it with chemicals, and then you eat it. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I got rid of products I didn't want anywhere near my body. I found that many multivitamins contain high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and even lacked some of the nutrients we actually needed. So what did I do? At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. Ritual's products are made traceable, meaning we share the science and sourcing for every single ingredient. For example, our vegan vitamin D3 comes from sustainably harvested lichen in Nottingham, England, not sheep. We trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. See for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. This was about 2 a.m. When we got into the car, we pulled around to the front of the main house so my mom could return the key, say thanks, and proceed to get the hell out of there without any wasted motion. However, when we got to the front, all of the lights were off. Not just all lights, but it looked like no one had been home. Porch light, table lamp in the front windows, everything dark. Also, the two cars that were in the driveway were now gone. The local's car, and what we presumed to be his wife's car. After seeing this, my mom was pretty unsettled. Said we were leaving right then and there and we proceeded towards the gate. The gate at the end of the driveway had been deadbolted and padlocked shut from the inside. It wasn't a super strong gate, so my dad said, rev it and get out of there. We smashed through that gate like it was nothing. Drove straight back to New York City, not speaking the entire time. Since that point, we never went back to Maine, and my parents refused to speak about it. I asked a family member one night about this while he was drunk and all he said was they didn't tell you the actual owners of that house were on vacation I'm assuming my mom or dad followed up with local authorities and figured that out but never told us kids about it I don't know who that man was or what was planned for that evening to this day I'm still curious as to whether there were any known serial killers in that area during that time This is absolutely the creepiest thing I've ever endured in my life, and it's reassuring to know that my hysterics weren't misplaced, even as a 14-year-old. So this story happened back when I was a kid. My parents were divorced, and my older sister had a baby that she was always pawning off on me. My dad and stepmother showed up at our house while my mother was at work. They had decided to take us to a fair. That would have been great, but I had my one-year-old niece with me that I was babysitting, and I told my dad it wasn't a good idea because of this. He insisted, and 
Basically, I was forced to go and take my niece along with me. Once we arrived at the fair, my dad and stepmother gave my sister, my stepbrother, and me 20 bucks, told us to go have fun. I should mention, I was 12 years old at the time and they still expected me to watch my niece. There's not much you can do at the fair with a baby in tow, so I went to one of the snack trucks and bought an ice cream for the both of us. That was when I first noticed the man. He was heavy set, probably in his 40s, and staring at us. There was something about the way he was staring that just freaked me out. I wasn't sure if it was me or my niece that he was interested in, but either way it gave me the chills. I told myself I was overreacting and got up, walked off carrying my niece, but he followed. I walked all around the fair looking for my dad, my stepmother, my stepbrother, my sister. I couldn't find any of them anywhere, and the whole time, this man followed behind. I had to pee, but there was no way I wanted to go into the bathroom. I was afraid of him following us in there. I ditched my niece's stroller because I don't know exactly, I just wanted her in my arms, and the stroller was slowing us down. So this had been going on for about three hours. It was now dark outside. I was absolutely terrified and scared for my niece and myself. I kept trying to lose the guy by turning down different paths, but he stayed on us, kept following. But finally, I saw a man in a security guard outfit. I ran up to him, full on crying now. I told him I couldn't find my family and a strange man was following us. When I went to point the man out, he was gone. The security guard took us to a tent. I think it was a first aid tent. They kept telling me they could watch my niece and for me to relax. I was absolutely shaken, but I refused to let her out of my sight. They had me call my mother who screamed at me for going while I was supposed to be babysitting. She told me that I was grounded and irresponsible at that. Finally, my dad and stepmother were found and brought in to get us. They were also mad at me for calling my mother. They took us home and when I got there, I told my mom about the man. I wasn't grounded any longer at that point, but she and my father went to war over visitations. Just a couple years before this, two girls had gone missing at that very same fair, and they were never found. My mom was beyond pissed they made us go and then ditched us. My father, until the day he died, had attitude with me about this event, said I overreacted. To this day, I still hate fairs. I thought I'd share this experience in case anyone's ever been through something similar or has an idea of what kind of scenario I was dealing with. I was driving home from the gym at night and pulled up to a red light near a local courthouse. I noticed a driver of a white jeep one lane over staring at me. Older guy, I guess late 40s, early 50s, with long 70s style sideburns. I'm 31 and male, if that adds any context to this story. I turned and looked at him, and he started pointing towards me, towards my left. At first, I thought he wanted to cut in front of me when the light turned green, which is strange because there was no one coming behind us imminently, so he could have easily just waited for me to go. But I guess someone else might pull up. I pointed to my left to confirm that's what he wanted, 
And then I cracked my window just a little bit, because all he did was keep on pointing, so I wanted to ask what was up. He didn't open his. The light turned green and he changed lanes to drive behind me. It feels likely that he was trying to tell me to pull over earlier now that I'm thinking about it. I kept driving and changed lanes because he was tailgating me, but he immediately switched lanes as well. At this point, he continued to change lanes, left to right, tailgating me, driving erratically, putting his left turn signal on but not turning left at several lights for example. He also slowed down to maintain the same pace as me a few different times. Thoroughly weirded out, I come up with a plan. I wait for us to near an intersection, where he evens up with me on the left side of my car, and as we're about to proceed through the green light, I bust a hard right down this street that I know will take me in a loop, directly towards my house, but without showing my direct route. As I execute this move, I see this man slow his car down, but he's unable to make the turn to follow me. Instead, he proceeds directly through the light. About a mile down on the street that I just turned, it's going to intersect that street that I just exited. Well, as I near that intersection, I see the same white jeep take a right turn and head directly towards me. As we pass each other, the man flips his high beams on and off, on and off while honking a few times in my direction. There's no place for him to flip a U-turn, which I'm incredibly thankful for. But now that we've seen each other once more, I don't feel comfortable going directly home. I proceed in the general direction of my house, but well before that point, I pull off onto a side street and park my car. I cut my lights off and slink down into my seat, while I still have a perfect view of the main street I just pulled off of. Within five minutes, I see that same white jeep drive by three different times. The last time he pulled by, it was going the opposite direction of the way that I needed to head. So after giving it a few heartbeats for him to get further away, I take this opportunity to make my escape and head straight home. I'm far from sure what his intentions were, but that was a strange experience and it had me unnerved to say the least. I think the strangest part of this interaction was that this man never made an attempt to talk to me. All he did was point. Well, that and follow me for about 20 minutes one late night. Not sure what you wanted, Jeep Man, but I'm plenty happy to never meet again. I've contemplated posting this for years, but the emotional capital of writing this out always just felt too heavy. It chills me to this day when I think about what happened, or should I say, could have happened, to my sister and I back in 2007. I was 25, she was 23. We were living in Phoenix, Arizona, and living a pretty wild life. Lots of partying. However, she could keep it in check. I myself was a blackout drunk. Side note, as of this year, I'm now 15 years without a drink. We were out with some friends at a party one night. I was particularly stupid and took my friend's car key to go pick up this couple I had met earlier in the evening. They were Eastern European, and I forget which country exactly, but needless to say, I was wasted and reckless. My sister called me while I was out, upset to high heavens because our friend discovered that I took her car. I went back to the party and was promptly screamed at and kicked out, which 
I don't blame my friend for. My sister was embarrassed and crying. She was really intoxicated as well, which wasn't a normal thing for her. I remember we were walking to find a taxi or something. This part is pretty hazy to me. But the next thing I know, we're in the back of a car at a gas station on Grand Avenue. This particular street leads off into an old Arizona interstate highway. The random European couple I had met earlier, and ultimately didn't end up picking up, were trying to open the door and feverishly get us out of the car. They had just so happened to be at this gas station at 1am. I don't even know how they spotted me, but they must have sensed trouble. I have hazy details, but I know they were frantic and insistent about getting us out of the car, and away from the driver. From what they told us, the man driving appeared to be a total creep, and didn't resemble anyone that two young women should be associating with. I have no idea of how we ended up in his car, who he was, where we were going, and why he needed to fill his tank. Sometimes, I think the mysterious couple were angels sent to look after us. I know how weird that sounds, but I can't figure out how to parse through the randomness of this encounter. Both my sister and I were missing our phones the next day, as well as our wallets. I'm certain the man had taken them both. There's a number of things that could have happened that night, and I feel lucky that we're still alive to this day. It racks me with guilt that I put my little sister in that situation, and anytime I feel like picking up a drink, it's one of the memories I play back to remind myself of the dark place that alcohol takes me. My upbringing taught me that there was nothing fun in dysfunctional. With most of my childhood spent daydreaming of being rescued and living happily ever after. I called Child Protective Services, I ran away to the police station, I went to my principal, other parents and witnesses spoke up, yet somehow I'd always be returned home. We're talking the late 80s here, when kids were not listened to and had no voice. At least, such was my experience. At the time of this encounter, my parents were caretakers for a multi-unit apartment complex. It was surrounded by vast fields on two sides, a main road at the front, and behind our unit there was the treasured forest. In reality, it was a swath of older pines kept as a buffer between a second main road and said units. Though perhaps six feet wide, to a nine or ten-year-old girl, it was a forest. My friends and I would spend our days running all over the place, hiding, picking wild berries in the fields, playing games, riding bikes, and playing in the woods. You know, just being kids. Well, one day, after non-stop verbal and physical abuse... I decided it was my time to run away and live on the streets. Anything was better than living with my family, especially my mother. All the Unsolved Mysteries episodes didn't deter my little self from making this choice. I was convinced anything would be better. Packed up my tiny bag, grabbed my favorite doll, snuck out the window of my room, which was on the ground floor, and ran like a bat out of hell into my beloved forest with my egg donor's tirade carrying on behind me, until the woods swallowed up all the noise. Out of the house, no one realizing I was missing, I hid inside a tree branch fort all of us kids had made, and had myself a good old cry. As the sun began to go down, casting that golden summer glow, it was time to start walking. 
pick a direction, and head to a new life. As only a child could, I managed to bumble about and emerge further down the tree line, apartments to my back and the road in front of me. I don't know what stopped me right there on the dirt edge of the road, but there I stood. Whoosh. Whoosh. Pause. Whoosh. The sounds of three vehicles passing in quick succession. Quickly and closely. The force of the wind whips my hair and clothes around in a fury, and I adjust my footing to better brace myself. I clutch my doll tighter and freeze. A fourth vehicle was coming up. A white utility van. Immediately, our eyes lock. Time slows. The van slows. He turns down the hairband he's jamming to. His face loses the nonchalant, happy, headbanger smile and transforms into a nervous, giddy, opportunistic predator. Thirty plus years later and I recall every detail. A silver gouge along the passenger door. Early twenties white man. Dirty blonde wavy shoulder length hair. Hazel brown eyes and chipped upper left front tooth. Smoker, white baseball cap, no shirt, knotted scar tissue on his left peck. The passenger door began to slide open, his head swiveling and eyes darting while coming over the seat, Converse sneaker dangling to find purchase on the road. Freeze went to flight at this point. I didn't want to go home, but the wave of nausea and certainty of a horror I wouldn't live through were overpowering. I ran back to the apartment went through the front door and endured another beating by my mother. I didn't know it then, but I learned in time she made me a fine-tuned empath. I didn't doubt my spidey senses for a moment then, and still don't to this day. Whomever that man was, he was going to be the end of me if I had waited just a moment longer. This is a long story, so bear with me. It's all true, and I'm truly happy to still be alive. It was the summer of 1997, and I was a grad student in Northern California, from abroad. Not an immigrant then, just a foreigner getting a degree, and planning to go back to the old country afterwards. At the time, my girlfriend was still back home abroad, since we both expected me to return to Europe after graduation and maybe, though unspoken at the time, possibly get married after. So she came over for a summer vacation, and that's where we hatched this idea. Let's do a car trip down to SoCal. We can take the coastal highway, see Santa Barbara, Monterey, Venice Beach, LA, San Diego. The whole tourist enchilada for two 20-somethings visiting oh-so-cool California. My then-girlfriend, and this description of her physical features is entirely serving as a preparation for what was to come that day, had perfectly shaped thin legs and curved body, long hair, and was generally speaking, quite attractive. She was also borderline paranoid, which I knew at that point already, as she had already given me plenty of headaches when she had dragged me into conflict situations, where she demanded that I defend her like a man, when the situation had actually been completely provoked by her, and deteriorated due to her unstable, let's say, mental tendencies. Hence, my tendency to not immediately jump on the thought of getting married. I knew all that then, 
but I still went along with her demands and plans as usual that day. We were nonetheless in love and all that, but me perhaps a little less than her. So we did drive down to SoCal from the Bay Area. My rusty but beloved clunky 80s convertible took us along a beach road to a motel in San Diego. My girlfriend said let's pick a motel near the beach so we could step out and swim in the morning. She also suggested us getting dinner somewhere and driving around town to get the feel. I said okay, what she wanted is what she got. We drove past rows of motels along this coastal road and she knew what she wanted so she ended up choosing. This is the one, she said. Let's park and see. The vacancy sign was lit. Parking spots in the motel courtyard were all but empty. I drove in and parked, and I had driven the entire way so she could tell that I was tired. She said that she would drive later, and I was grateful for that in the moment. She heads to the motel counter while I unload our suitcases. Coming up the stairs with the suitcases to the reception, She's talking to a youngish, tall, dark blonde guy behind the counter. Not a bad looking guy if I'm being honest. He's looking her up and down with small eyes, clearly checking her out. He sees me, turns around, grabs a key from the board and says, I got the perfect room for you guys. And he leads us up the outside stairs. The motel was built just like a chain of rooms lined up. Fronts all looking out towards the ocean, doors towards the motel parking lot courtyard. He takes us to a room right smack in the middle of the long building, second floor. The entire motel seems empty. So it leaves me wondering, why this room? Why not something on the first floor or maybe an end? The view is the same everywhere. As we enter, I notice one smaller door next to our motel front door, which says, service personnel only. Our room is right next to it. Built narrow, but big bed and bathroom, and on the left wall just across from the big bed, a giant mirror on the wall that was shared with that service room. The guy nods and leaves us to it. As soon as we're alone in the room and he's left, I turn to the GF and say, don't you think this is weird? She says, what? I point at the mirror and take a closer look. Yep, it's built into the wall, not hanging but fixed into. I find this extra creepy. She says, don't be paranoid. Okay, maybe. I gotta get something out of the car anyway, so I step outside, only to see Mr. Motel Man just stepping out of the service room, locking it behind himself, and heading back downstairs. Once I was back up, I took a big textile blanket and hung it over the mirror. Maybe I'm paranoid now too, or maybe not. If he was a peeping Tom, he wasn't going to get anything from us. We take a nap, and later, as we head out for some food and checking out the town, night is beginning to draw near. The motel parking lot is now two-thirds full. We were early. Good, girlfriend says. I feel foolish and swear to myself to be less paranoid. She's usually the paranoid one, and... It's usually enough for the both of us. That mirror, though. Never mind. So we spend the evening having dinner, driving around until we finally decide it's time to get back to the motel. It's dark out and it's way before GPS, so I consult the city map we have. I sit in the passenger seat, glad that she's the one driving, 
while I tried to read the map of San Diego in the light of a feeble, tiny keychain light. We're headed back roughly in the right direction of the motel, somewhat parallel to the beach boulevard we need to be on, but I realize we might have gone too far. As I stare at the map in that dim light, she looks in the rearview mirror and suddenly says, That van there? I think they're following us. I look up. Surely now she's the one being paranoid. Behind us, one lane to the right, is an old silvery blue van, a bit run down with dark windows. I swear, she says, he's been behind us for three blocks at least, took the same turns. He's not even trying to pass us, even when I drive slowly. I look around and there's hardly any traffic in this direction as we roll on. I seriously doubt her, my rational mind telling me that victims rarely ever get picked randomly. I try to calm her down, look at the map again, and get an idea. Look, I said, we actually have to take a U-turn left around to get down into the lane that takes us back towards the beach boulevard with the motel. So, I said looking down the road at the next traffic light a block away, there's no cop here. Make this a legal U-turn, and we'll see. She nods. I know she's a way better driver than me. She has three more years of driving experience with a stick shift in narrow European streets while I had just learned driving in America. As we approach the next traffic light and crossing, a clear no U-turn sign is hanging next to the light, that eerie silver blue van behind us to the right, and the light turns red. And girlfriend gone race car driver puts the pedal all the way down, motor howling and shoots over the red light in an illegal U-turn around to get in the opposite direction. The van? I kid you not. It sped up, shot into our lane behind us, and did the very same thing, wheels screeching on the pavement. Then it accelerates full throttle to catch up, being barely an arm's length behind our bumper, its lights glaring into our rearview mirror, blinding as hell. Hit it, hit it, I mumbled now panicking myself, as my girlfriend accelerates, the van behind us staying on our tail the entire way. We shoot down two, three blocks, the van right upon us. More cars join in our direction, though. Behind us, the traffic gets denser and the lanes merge into one. Now the van is still behind us, but close behind it are three, four, or more other cars, all speeding, all pretty close to each other. We can see all their lights. We're back on the boulevard where our motel is, one lane road. Many fairly closely parked cars to our right, with just the occasional gap or entries to other parking lots. A concrete barrier on the left. Nowhere to go but forward, really. We're moving fairly fast, easily 60 miles per hour. For sure way past the speed limit here, but so is everybody else. How do we shake this van? Surely we shouldn't lead them straight to the motel girlfriend super driver suddenly hits the brakes and veers to the right. The van has no choice. It can't brake or it'll get hit by the cars behind it. So it passes by us on the left, immediately followed by three, four, five more speeding cars tailing it, all fast in one lane, while my girlfriend swoops the car perfectly into what feels like a tiny pigeonhole of a parking spot. We can't stay here, I muttered after we come to a stop while catching my breath. Totally stunned by her skills, by the way. I know, she says, and hits the pedal again, shooting out into traffic, but now we're behind the van, 
safely at least eight or nine cars behind it. They can't possibly know. Just a few hundred yards further down is our motel. She took a swing into the parking lot. We parked and rushed up into our room, the one with the creepy mirror. I looked over my shoulder the whole time, wondering whether anyone had seen us, but nothing. Just a pleasant summer evening wind, the sounds of traffic going by, and cicadas. I didn't sleep much that night. I don't think she did either. Just another tourist summer night in San Diego. As I look back on this, the thing that I think triggered the creeps in the van was that I had a rundown car with a Northern California license plate, and they may have only seen my girlfriend driving. They might not have seen me, or if they did, maybe it was just a silhouette. So they may have assumed that this was one or two women, lost, far from home, driving around at night. I hear San Diego is wonderful. I'm sure it is, but that entire day felt like a sketchy intro into a slasher movie. I was told this story about 16 years ago by my mother, so I may make some mistakes here, but it's still an extremely freaky experience. So this happened in St. Kilda, Australia, in the early 80s. My mom may have been 20 or 21, and she lived in an apartment complex where you had to ring a buzzer and talk to someone before they could be let into the complex. In case you didn't know, St. Kilda isn't exactly the best area to live. A lot of junkies and criminals reside around the suburb and congregate at the St. Kilda Pier. In the 90s, I remember warnings of not walking through the beaches due to syringes being left there. We had a heroin epidemic at the time and contracting HIV or AIDS was a death sentence. Anyway, one night around 2am, my mom is in bed asleep. She hears this blood-curdling scream from a woman in the streets below. She wakes up and dials 000, our version of 911, to tell the police what she heard and for them to come as soon as possible. Not five minutes go by and her apartment buzzer rings. She springs up to answer it and is met by two men saying, Police, let us in. We need your statement. My mom was a fraction of a second away from buzzing them in until she had a really bad gut feeling and her internal dialogue took over. How'd the police get here so quickly? I didn't hear any sirens and definitely didn't see any flashing lights. Where was the ambulance as well? So at this point, she ignores the constant buzzing, calls her friend who lives on the floor below, telling her that something didn't seem right. At the same time, the buzzing continued, and whoever was out there refused to give any identification other than saying, police. At this point, my mother's a bit uneasy and even fearful of what'll happen if she opens that door. This is when she decides to ring the St. Kilda Police Department directly. She asks the sheriff that answered, are your officers already here? The sheriff said that the police were tending to other matters and were probably about half an hour away. He also told her not to let those people in as they were not his men. At this point, my mom went down to her friend's place. She didn't feel safe in her own. Forty minutes later, two police officers rang the buzzer, introducing themselves as Constable So-and-So and 
senior constable such and such, with badge numbers and an apology for being late, asking if they could come in. Now my mom's friend and my mom could see a police car with sirens and an ambulance out the window, so they decided to let the police in and give them their statement. The police then let my mother know that detectives were now investigating the vicinity and would let them know if the police required them to come into the station for further questioning. The police would then leave and crime scene tape is wrapped around the entire area, which my mom discovered the next morning. Being absolutely terrified, mom decided to stay at her friend's place and barely sleeps a wink. The detectives apparently discover a body about 20 meters away from the apartment complex. The victim was a young woman in her early 20s who was just trying to return home and had been stabbed several times. I don't know whether they ever found the criminal or criminals involved, but what I have learned is to never go home alone at night, to always trust your gut, and also not to believe people at their word without any given evidence. It terrifies me to think about what could have happened to my mom had she buzzed those two men in. Be safe, everyone. When I was about 21 years old, I served tables at a pizza chain restaurant at a new shopping center near where I lived in the evenings and on weekends. It was a part-time job for me. I was opening staff at this brand new place and it was pretty popular at the time. There were several shifts of employees and a few trainers that came from other locations nearby and stayed to work at the brand new location. One of these cooks was named John. He was only a couple of years older than me. He was a kitchen manager or something similar. When I would forget to ring something in or make a mistake and he was working, I'd go back to the kitchen, tell him the situation and he would often help me, give me extra sauce or whatever was needed. He was really nice to me, never raised his voice or seemed to get mad. He was pretty soft-spoken, quiet guy. I was engaged at the time and there was no flirting or anything. He was quiet, didn't seem interested in me, like that or really whatever. Just did his job and we'd briefly chat when we worked the same schedule. I quit about four to five months after opening the restaurant and didn't stay in contact with most of the staff, including John. But fast forward a few months after I quit, I was reading a news article and the name in the article was the same name as the guy I had worked with. Turns out, he had starved his stepson to death while keeping him in a locked closet. I looked it up further and this picture came up, and it was the same guy, John. I was dumbfounded. Apparently he had gotten custody of his ex-girlfriend's child, no blood relation to him. Although I think there was another child in the house, a boy that was John's biological son. He also had a live-in girlfriend who was no blood relation to either child. The stepson was like 30 pounds total when he was found, at the age of 8 years old. This poor child was made to use a litter box the last few weeks of his life, kept in a small linen closet. And to think, his stepfather was a cook. If there were money issues, he could have easily taken food from the restaurant. No one would have known. Employees get a free meal each shift. He had so many ways to feed this child. John was ultimately sentenced to life in prison. 
I still think of this poor kid who never had a chance. And about the guy who hurt him, how he was so unassuming, friendly but quiet or shy, capable of a job and training others for it. But I can't help but wonder what's wrong with people like him? What made it okay in his eyes to be like, you deserve this kid? It still haunts me to this day, how this happened to someone or by something that made an adult truly dislike a child enough to do this, and to convince an adult woman of the same. How did neither of them try to help this child? Moral is, no matter how friendly or soft-spoken somebody may be, you never really have an idea of their true character, and there's no way to judge a book solely by its cover. I'm going to start with the background information first. I'm a young woman, my home country is the Netherlands, and I felt the need to share this, if just to prevent other young women from being in the same situation themselves. Last year, when I turned 18, myself and two other friends had a little get-together and kind of planned to go out that night. One of my friends was active on Tinder at the time and had been chatting with an 18-year-old guy named Jens. This guy asked if we'd like to come to meet him at this bar in Utrecht. And we were thinking, yeah, why not? Free alcohol. Hot guy. Seems fun. We get ready, take a train, and within 15 minutes, we're in the city. We stopped at some stores and a restaurant before we arrived at the bar. We go in and sit on those high chairs. You know the ones. We didn't immediately see the guy from Tinder, so... We sat and waited for about 15 minutes before my friend gets a message that says that Jens is running late. So we wait some more, order a few Cokes. My friend tried to message the guy, but messages went unanswered. After a while, this guy, who we noticed had been sitting at the bar pretty much the whole time, asked us if he could buy us a drink. This man was 30, maybe 35, but... There were three of us, and after all, we came to get a free drink. So we agreed, and he ordered us shots. We continued our conversation, and when we finished the shots, he kept the drinks coming. At some point, he joined us at our table, came to sit with us, and engaged with our conversation. Then, later all of us moved to a lounge in the corner of the bar. We were all kind of tipsy at this point, and generally enjoying ourselves. This went on for maybe a few hours. We spoke about a lot of topics, from foods and our favorite music artists, but at some point, the conversation took a turn. He began asking sexually tinted questions, and because this man was not hot at all, rather ugly by the way, we didn't like that. I felt a little too tipsy, and knew that I needed some water, so I headed up to the bar and asked the bartender for some. When I did, she looked at me with an air of seriousness and advised me that we could absolutely not go home with this man that we were sitting with. She said that it was a rather common occurrence for a young woman to happen into the bar, sit for a while, obviously get stood up, and then this supposedly nice man, who was a regular there, would buy them a drink, get them as drunk as possible, and then ask them to go home with him. That happened to be the man that we were sitting with. I didn't make a connection right away, but 
I understood that this man was not as nice as he was letting on. When I got back to our table, I told my friends that I wanted to go home, and they all happened to agree. We were trying to say goodbye, but the guy kept pressuring us to have another drink or head to another bar. He said he had Bacardi for us at his home and asked if we wanted some. He kept pressuring and pressuring and literally walked out with us from the bar. I freaked out and thought the man was going to follow us home, but eventually he did walk into another bar and we went ahead and took our train back home. The next day, when my senses had returned, I realized what had happened. I told my friend what the bartender had said, and when my friend tried to contact the Tinder profile, she found out that she had been blocked. I'm 100% sure that that man, who coincidentally was there to get friendly with us when we got stood up, was that supposed 18-year-old from Tinder. I think about what could have happened if we were to have gone home with him. I'm happy that there were three of us, because... I don't know what could have happened if I or any of my friends were alone. For every young girl in the Netherlands out there, if you stumble across a Tinder account under the name Jens, don't be too quick to meet them. I believe he lives in Utrecht, as he asked us to walk with him for the Bacardi. If you happen to get stood up, and a white man about 35 years old with short dark blonde hair and uneven eyebrows offers you a drink, don't accept. Just leave. I want to tell you all of an experience that I had back in March of 2021 that still bothers me to this day. I'm from the Tampa, St. Petersburg area of Florida and came across the cutest little beach access at Upham Beach that never closed and they never removed the beach chairs that had been put up. I had been once or twice late at night with friends so I thought it was totally safe. I wanted to take my girlfriend so one night on a full moon we both went and were just chilling, having a good time. There was a group of guys about a thousand feet from us partying, but eventually they left and we were left completely alone. The full moon illuminated the sky beautifully that night. My girlfriend and I, both women, 21 at the time, were hanging out on the beach chairs when I decided that I wanted to go see the water. She told me to be careful and that it was dark down there. The beach chairs were maybe about 20 feet away from the shoreline. I told her I'd be fine and went to watch the waves, which were especially loud this night. My girlfriend was just messing around on her phone and I was watching the water. About two minutes into being down there, I had a feeling that I needed to check in with her. So I looked up to see her screaming my name and waving her hands trying to get my attention. I looked to the left of me and across the way, there was a man in a dark hoodie staring at me. I had no idea where he came from, because I was just alone a moment ago. I started running up the sand dune to get back to my girlfriend at the beach chairs, and she tells me that that man came running from the parking lot, full force, until he realized that she was sitting there too. The guy followed us up to the section of chairs and was just staring at us from the other side of them, with an eerie stillness about him. No one made a single move or made a peep, and we could feel his piercing eyes burning into us. We both felt like he was making a decision in his mind whether or not he should continue whatever it was that he came for. It felt like forever, and 
He was looking at us like we were prey. But realistically, he had only been standing there for maybe 30 seconds before he simply rushed away. So many scenarios flooded through our heads, and we both felt in true danger for our lives. But absolutely petrified, we stayed in our places as we tried to regain our wits. We ran to our car and called the police once we could, who we never heard anything back from. We've collectively remembered this evening many times together, and both agree that if this was all a big misunderstanding and he never meant us any harm, he would have said something or apologized when we were cornered at the chairs. The way he looked at us and the vibes that we got from him that night, I can't even imagine what his intent was. Thank God my girlfriend got the feeling to look up from her phone when she did and see him coming at me before it was too late. I have searched countless web pages and articles for incidents like this near the area and I've never found any other experiences like mine. All I know, that's my last time going to that beach at night, alone or otherwise. I definitely advise others to stay away from this place as well. Still makes my stomach crawl just thinking about it. A few days ago, my girlfriend and I were on the home stretch of a big road trip with our dog. As it had been a while since we last stopped, we pulled into a rest stop off the freeway to stretch our legs and let the doggo have a bathroom break. When we pulled into the rest stop, there were no cars but three big semi-trucks parked in a line. Immediately my girlfriend got out to go into the restroom. I leashed up the dog and stood next to the car, and as she was walking towards the entry door, I thought I heard someone yell from behind me. I turn around and, to my surprise, it was a trucker in the driver's seat of his truck, with the window rolled down, trying to get my attention. Now, I'm generally pretty friendly towards all people, whether they seem shady or not. I'm also generally willing to lend a hand, help someone out if they need it. Behind me in the truck was an older gentleman, large with gray hair and thick glasses. His truck was so loud I couldn't hear what he was saying so I yelled back, What? The trucker yelled something inaudible three more times as I had to repeat, What? While shaking my head and holding up my hands to inform him that I couldn't hear him. At this point, he seemed visually annoyed that I had taken no further effort to hear what he had to say. Okay, that may be understandable. I wanted to see what the deal with this guy was so... I walked halfway between the car and the passenger side of his truck. What did you say? I asked. Can you help me look for my phone? I lost it somewhere, the trucker said. At this point, I was caught super off guard, as this had all unfolded within the 30 to 45 seconds since we had parked at the rest stop. To me, it was weird that a trucker was asking a random person stopping here to help look for their phone. Maybe he just wanted me to call it. Where did you lose it at? I asked. I lost it in my truck. Can you come up here and help me look for it? The trucker replied in a rather unnerving tone. In that moment, I was absolutely sketched out. I thought I was about to be abducted. Phone call I could do, but no way was I about to get into the trucker's cab to help look for his phone. Yeah, no, I said sternly but half-heartedly 
as I almost thought this guy was joking with me. After a few moments, the trucker then says, You're not going to help me look for it? My adrenaline was pumping, so I yelled back, Nah, man, get out of here. In a threatening tone, knowing damn well I had nothing to defend myself with, should something go awry. I put the doggo back into my car and pulled out my phone to pretend I was calling the cops. As he put his truck into drive and slowly inched by before stopping once more. Once again asking if I was going to help him. I screamed, no, the f*** out of here before I call the cops. After that reply, he stepped heavily on the gas and exited the lot towards the freeway. I stood and watched when finally my girlfriend exits the rest stop, wondering why I looked like I just saw a ghost. I don't know if this was an overreaction, but it sketched me out and it gave me that weird feeling in my gut that I would have been dumb to ignore. Can't believe he asked me to get into his truck. This story happened a long time ago, probably a decade or more. So while a lot of time has gone by, I've never forgotten about this experience, and it still gives me the chills. I'm currently 33, and I'm female. But when I was in my early 20s, I was studying to finish my biology major with a specialization in animal behavior. I think that's why this story stands out to me so much. At the time, I had a female dog named Nina, a boxer. She passed away when she was about 10 from lung cancer, and I miss her a lot to this day. Nina was very energetic, so I took her on long walks around the neighborhood, usually at the end of the day, around 4, maybe 5 p.m., when it wasn't too hot, but also not quite dark either. One thing you must know about Nina was that she loved people. She did not get along with other dogs, but every time she saw someone walking by us, she would shake her little tail and want to get closer and ask for pets. One evening, we decided to go on our walk as usual. Everything was fine for the most part. I saw a few other dog trainers walking their dogs and an old couple sitting in front of their house just chatting. But once we were off on our own, alone, Nina began growling. Like I said, with my area of study, I paid a lot of attention to my dog's behaviors and had quite a lot of knowledge on dog behavior in general because it was my favorite subject. Dogs can see movement much better than us, so things like an eyebrow raise or a little tension in the shoulders are things that they can pick up quite easily. So while a dog growling doesn't sound that weird in and of itself, Nina often growled at other dogs and cats when she saw them, but this was a different type of growl. It was ultra low, and all of the fur on her back was stood up. Her entire behavior was of alarm. And then I noticed. She was looking backwards while growling. This is when I looked behind me, and in the distance, like a block away, I saw a man. This made me even more alert to the situation because... Nina never growled at anyone on the street before. She never stopped walking by my side or tried to pull away, but she kept this low growl and kept staring at this man. I began to freak out just a little bit. I decided that me and Nina were going to turn at the next corner. When we reached it, she seemed to settle for just a little bit. But as we neared the middle of the block, she began growling again. I turn over my shoulder and there he was again. 
only this time, much closer. He didn't try to talk to us, didn't try to call me, and his expression was serious, somewhat emotionless. I kept walking in random patterns through this neighborhood, and I always found him there. That man was definitely following us. And at some point, the distance that had already shrunk between us began to shrink even further. This happened as Nina's growling began to get stronger and stronger. So when we hit the next corner, I began running, full-out sprint while he couldn't see me. I ran down about four blocks in the direction of an area that I knew had more traffic and more people around. I stopped to catch my breath and ultimately looked behind me. At this point, we had all but left him in the dust. He was about four blocks behind us, standing at the corner where we had just taken off running from. Just there, standing, staring directly at us. Nina was trained in on him, still with her alarm posture. After a minute or so, he turned around and went back in the same direction that he had come from. And at that exact moment, Nina finally relaxed. I paid attention to Nina's behavior the entire way back home, but she was just her normal happy self by that point. I told this story to my parents and a few neighbors, and no one seemed to know of any man that looked like the man that I had seen. I never saw him again, and Nina never behaved like that again either. So I'll never know who he was, why he was following us, but I definitely don't regret trusting Nina's instincts in that situation. People, please pay attention to your pet's behaviors as much as you can. It's not about a supernatural sixth sense. They can actually feel, see, and hear things better than us, and there's no behavior that happens for no reason. There's always a reason. Stay safe, everyone. This took place when I was about 20 years old. At the time, I was living alone in an apartment in a notorious building near the center of my city. It was Saturday night, and I had been out with my friends and my now husband. It was past 4 a.m., so we got my husband and his close friend to drive me and my friend back to my building. She lived near me, maybe only a minute walk away, but it was difficult to get to by car, so... As she had done a thousand times before, she would take the quick walk home from the front of my building. We said our goodbyes when we reached the front door. My friend began to stroll towards her place. My husband's friend stayed in the car, as my husband and I made out in my doorway for a few minutes, until some guys started hollering from one of the balconies of my building. I felt a bit embarrassed by having a public display like that, so for me, that was the cue to say goodnight, goodbye, and head inside. I walked through the main door to enter the building, just as a guy walked downstairs. I didn't think much of this, so I pressed the button for the elevator, simply because I didn't feel like taking the stairs to the sixth floor. After a long night of drinking, I'm sure you know the feeling. The man, who was maybe a few years older than me, asked if I had a cigarette. I told him no, I'm sorry, just to keep it short and simple. He simply nodded, but kept staring at me and stood next to me while waiting on the elevator. I felt creeped out by this. I couldn't put a finger on why, but I knew that I did. I still decided to wait for the elevator at this point and get us home as fast as possible. At this point, 
I naively thought that maybe he would just leave once the elevator door opened. But he didn't. Once the doors opened, he stepped in and just waited for me. I paused for a moment, not quite knowing what to do, but I got inside the elevator myself and noticed that he hadn't pressed a button. I got this weird gut feeling that I just couldn't ignore. That's when I went to excuse myself, step out of the elevator, and tell him no need to wait because I was going to take the stairs. But at this point, he grabbed my arm and attempted to pull me back inside the elevator, saying something like, no you're not, get over here. At this point I screamed, yelling to let me go and saying that I really just wanted to go home. I yanked my arm hard to free myself. I just about ran outside, but I didn't know where to go. I didn't want to just stay in the lobby of the building. I didn't feel safe, but I don't think that I would have felt safe outside either. I just started walking away from my complex and called my friend. She asked me where I was so she could come back and meet me, but her phone died before I could answer. My husband and I hadn't been dating for very long back then, so I felt really uncomfortable and almost embarrassed to reach out to him, but I did anyway. The need to get somewhere safe was bigger than my embarrassment in the moment, and I didn't know anyone else who would still be up at this time. I texted him, and once he got to know what was going on, he and his friend came racing back towards me. I think I heard their car from a few blocks away. They were back within two minutes, parked, and they escorted me into my building. By the time we got there, the guy that had grabbed me was nowhere to be found. They still decided to escort me back to my apartment and stayed with me for a while until the sun came up and I felt comfortable enough to go to sleep. I had three locks on my doors, so as soon as they left, I locked myself in and was able to force myself to sleep. I reported what had happened to my landlord, but he couldn't help me since the security cameras often didn't work and happened to be offline that evening. I told him about the guys on the balcony as well because I didn't know if that man was one of them and therefore saw me heading back into the building alone but the landlord told me that no one with that description lived on that side of the building. Looking back, I'm just so grateful for trusting my gut instinct and getting the hell out of there. I don't know if he would have done anything, but it was a weird and terrifying situation regardless. And I've often thought about how it could have gone much worse than it actually did. While in my early 20s, I landed a receptionist job in a sales office at a manufactured housing community. It was my first office job after working in daycare and the food and drink industry. I was so excited. I greeted potential buyers, set up appointments, and staged the mock homes with our stock of furniture and decorations. I worked with one other person in the office, who was the salesman. When he was out of the office, I took potential buyers through our model homes and gathered their information for follow-up. I was working alone one day when a customer came into the office looking to potentially purchase his first home. I gathered some information from the young man and asked him if he wanted to look at a couple of model homes. As he walked down the sidewalk towards the row of homes we had picked out, we chatted about the various floor plans and finishes available. I knew all the product information like the back of my hand and had no trouble confidently answering his questions. He was friendly and he even reminded me of a high school classmate that I had. I decided to show him the two home models that best fit his price range and his desired floor plan. 
since I shared most of the technical information during the first home tour, I gave him some space to freely look around the second home. He walked through the main living area and stopped in the doorway to one of the back bedrooms. That's when he called out, Hey, what is this back here? As he pointed to the corner of the room that I couldn't quite see from where I was standing. I knew these floor plans by heart, so I politely answered that it was a closet. In my mind, I was sarcastically thinking, Really? You don't know what a closet is? That's when he chuckled and asked again, No, really, come here. What is this back here? I could tell by his tone that he was pressuring me to come see for myself. He motioned for me to come closer and take a look. His tone was friendly, but his request didn't make sense, so I hesitated. And in that split second, something shifted. Maybe it was the energy in the air, the hairs on my neck standing straight up, or the way his eyes changed before me. I suddenly sensed the power dynamic had shifted and I no longer felt safe. With all the lightheartedness I could muster, I repeated, Oh, it's a closet. Hey, excuse me for a second. I need to check on something outside. I quickly made my exit back to the sidewalk outside the house. I had no concrete reason for why I felt the overwhelming need to leave the house immediately. I didn't understand why my body sensed danger. I just knew that I needed to act, and to act quickly. Over the next few days... The young man came back to the office to meet with the salesman. He filled out all the various paperwork needed to purchase a home and live within the community. He dropped by several more times unannounced to check on his application status. If I wasn't there, he would ask the salesman when I worked next. My coworker thought I had a not-so-secret admirer. I couldn't shake the overwhelming feeling that something wasn't right. So on the nights that I worked alone, I locked that office door. A few days later, Corporate sent back their analysis of the young man's application and completed background check. He had been denied. The background check revealed multiple SA convictions. And there it was. Crystal clear, undeniable, 2020 hindsight. The salesman called the customer right away to let him know his application had been denied and that we could not do anything further for him. A few days later, the young man decided to come back to the office one final time. When my coworker saw the young man's vehicle turn into our parking lot, he told me to go to the back room of the office where I would be out of sight. And just like the times before, the young man entered the office asking if I was around. This time he was met by a very angry six-foot salesman that had very little to lose. I had never heard my coworker raise his voice before, but on that day, his voice shook the office walls. Needless to say, that young man never came by again and I wasn't scheduled to work alone nearly as often. It was a weird experience that I shared in that model home with that guy, only even more terrifying in retrospect. I don't know what he wanted, but the more I think about it, it couldn't have been anything good waiting for me had I joined him in that back room. To this day, I'm glad I followed my gut right out to that sidewalk. Who knows what it saved me from. When I was a kid, I'm betting no older than 10, I was walking to the mailbox to grab the mail from my parents. I was fully clad in my baseball uniform, ready to go to my little league game which was set to start later that afternoon. A car pulled over and an elderly woman urged me to get into the car. 
I remember her being gray-haired, with glasses, a little on the heavier side, at least from what I could see from the shoulders up. You know, a typical grandma-looking woman. Immediately, I knew that something was off. Come on, we're going to be late, she insisted. She went on saying things like my bat and glove were in the trunk, telling me that my dad had given it to them earlier. She said my dad couldn't take me anymore, so he asked them to take me, and that they lived nearby. I honestly don't remember exactly what I did. I just remember the anxiety of piecing together what was happening in front of me. I want to say I booked it and ran for the house, but as I've gotten older, I just don't remember anymore. All I do remember is being back at the house and this off-putting old woman ringing our doorbell. Like with many other things in the story, as you'll come to see, I don't recall how long I had been in the house before this woman began ringing the doorbell. It couldn't have been more than a few moments because I hadn't even put together what my thoughts about this situation were yet. When my dad answered, he was obviously confused and she told him that they were testing me to see if I'd jump in the car with them. The most unsettling thing to me is, I don't remember if I actually got in their car. I'm not particularly old now, but the experience pumps so much adrenaline in me that I truly don't remember it well at all. When I do try to recall things, I can picture both outcomes, me running home, as well as me in their car. I don't remember getting a scolding, so I tend to assume the former occurred, but I'm just not sure. Testing a child or not, what a f***ed up thing to do in your free time. It makes me wonder if this old lady actually had the intentions that they spoke of. I remember getting home and not saying a word to my parents. The shock was still fresh and I hadn't had time to process what had happened. Was ringing the doorbell afterwards some kind of cover-up for a failed attempt? To avoid being reported to the police, maybe? Has anyone ever encountered something similar? I just find the whole situation extremely creepy. You don't really find too many kids walking around alone in baseball uniforms and coming up with that stuff on the fly. Gives me the impression that it was not this lady's first time trying to coax a child into their car. What do you think? So this story kind of just jumps right into it. I'll give you a little bit of background information before. That way I don't have to go back and explain. I'm a girl, and I was 16 at the time that this took place. I had a friend, let's call him Jake, and his mom was rumored around our school to be a prostitute. I don't know how the rumor started, and I'm not actually sure if it was even true, but every time anyone brought it up, he would get super angry and deny it. Anyway... He was the popular boy of the school, and would always host parties. I would often go to them, and his mom was always wasted and hanging out drinking with the kids. At the time, we all thought she was the cool mom, because she would buy us drinks, but that obviously wasn't the case. She was a single parent, and Jake's dad wasn't in the picture. On this particular night, my parents wouldn't let me go to the party because they said it was too late, but being a dumb teenager... I snuck out at like 3am and walked over. Again, dumb teenager emphasis. He lived close to me, I didn't figure that anything bad could happen, so whatever. When I arrived, there weren't many people left as it was already so late, but my best friend at the time was still there as she was waiting for me and we were going to come back to my house together. Jake's mom had three friends over herself, all in their 50s or so, and all men. 
A little bit of time elapses, and there's only about four of us left at the party, including Jake's mom and one of the men. The rest had left. I wasn't drinking much because it was late. I had maybe two or three mixed fruity drinks. But the man there, he seemed to take a liking to me, and offered me a shot, which I accepted. Not long after that, I started to feel really faded and out of it. At that time, I chalked it down to not eating much that day, but thinking back, he had likely done something to that drink. This should have been a warning sign in and of itself, that a man wanted to hang around with a bunch of kids, but everyone was drunk and I wasn't taking too much notice of him. Pretty sure the adults there were on drugs as well. Everything after this point, I don't remember so much, but my friend told me. At some point, he thought it was funny to pour water all over me, and was laughing. Then he starts saying he wants to touch my belly button while proceeding to lift up my shirt. I pushed the man away and said something along the lines of, f*** off and get away from me, which made him super offended as he was saying, I thought she was fun, now she's just ruining the party. Jake's mom was now trying to calm this man down and keep him from flying off the handle. At this point, I'm ready to leave, I just want to go home but I can't find my phone anywhere and I wanted to call my parents. My friend says I was crying and said, I want my mom, which is something I would never have been caught dead saying in front of people at the time, so I can only imagine how distraught I would have been. This is when the man says, I'll take her home, throw her in the back of my truck. Jake's mom proceeds to yell, stop, stop, she's only 16. While this man tried to pick me up and she attempted to fight him off. He eventually gave up, placed me down, and went home or to another room, I'm not exactly sure. We were too drunk to walk back to my house, and I didn't have my phone to call an Uber. I ultimately ended up knocking out on the couch over at Jake's, as his mom looked after me. I don't think anything happened to me while I was sleeping, but now there's no way of knowing. My friend was with me the whole time, but she eventually fell asleep too. Safe to say I never went back to Jake's place ever again or even talk to the kid. Not that it's his fault his mom is so sketchy. Also, I'm from the UK, hence the drinking so young. For Americans, I know it's not as common there. I did end up recounting this whole story to my parents, and yes, my dad wanted to go over to Jake's. Probably to yell at his mom, but more to get that man's info. I begged him not to because I was embarrassed. Embarrassed to put my dad in a position like that, but looking back, I certainly should have let him without fighting. My parents weren't angry at me for sneaking out, just super concerned. And of course, they banned me from going back there ever again. Not that that was a problem. As an adult now, I know that I can't ever go back to that night, but if I could, I wouldn't end up leaving my house at all. I'd stay wrapped up nice and cozy at home, safe and sound. I know that part of being a teenager is making poor decisions and coming out on the other side with new life lessons learned. But believe me, when I have kids, and they're teenagers, I'm for sure going to share this story with them, hoping that something that I had to live through will keep them from having to live through the same. One of the morals of this story, those cool parents probably really aren't all that cool. One night, probably about a year ago, I found myself on an app. 
This was a semi sort of dating app where you could talk to people who were within your area. I match with this girl and turns out we have a nice conversation and share a lot of common interests. We hit it off right away basically and exchanged numbers and pictures. Everything was pretty perfect. Mm, too perfect. She was really into me pretty much right away, hitting me with compliments left and right and that's just a little odd. She seemed obsessed with me and it was almost at an instant. I never had a girl like that before. Thinking back, she wasn't the most attractive young woman, but she certainly made me feel a type of way. At some point, she said that she wanted to meet, so we made a plan. We met up on a Saturday afternoon, had a lovely time. Although it was only my first time meeting her, we ultimately hooked up. Like I said, it was a lovely time. Because we were already at her house, I thought that maybe I'd be able to stay over and continue the good times, but she obviously wasn't with that plan, at some point pretty much insisting that it was time for me to go. I thought maybe she had lost interest because of my poor performance, but couldn't be bothered at that point and just went on with my day and I left the house. But she did not lose interest. She texted me about 30 minutes later and asked if I had arrived home. After that point, nothing special happened, just normal texting about life, stuff, until about two weeks later, when I was done with studies. I wanted to see her again, but something was just different. The way she wrote, without emojis, and certainly more direct. When I wrote her, she almost instantly replied, which is different from how we had interacted before because she had been taking her time in previous interactions. That's how I had known her, but... I was horny as hell at this point and didn't quite put two and two together that perhaps there was another person behind her mobile phone. Not thinking with my brain, I said I'd pick her up with my car at her house, but no, she said that I should meet her at a local park. She has to get gas anyway. The location we were supposed to meet was at a park, but she wanted to meet when it was already kind of dark, which stuck out as rather suspicious, but at that time, it also wasn't that suspicious. I said, why there? And she told me not to ask any dumb questions, said to just be there on time. I replied, LOL, okay. Once there, I sat waiting for her for about 15 minutes. She was late, but she eventually showed and I didn't care to be honest. I was just happy to see her again. She parked her car and that's when I got this weird feeling. I felt as if something is terribly wrong here, but I couldn't point out what. As I sat in my car, I checked our surroundings, looked left and right, looking for anything that was amiss, trying to peer behind trees and bushes, making sure that nobody was out there to, I don't know, ambush me. Funny thing is, she didn't get out of her car for the next two to three minutes either. I was like, yeah... This could be just a stupid, funny, unfunny joke of hers or something. I couldn't see into her car because the windows were tinted and that just made me feel even more uneasy. I was out of my car at this point, stood 20 to 30 meters away from her. I was waiting for her to come out of her car, but she just didn't. I was smiling at her car, at her driver's seat, probably out of nervousness because I thought she was continuing this unfunny joke. But suddenly I get a call. I pull out my cell and it was her. 
As soon as I pulled my phone out and saw her name, I heard doors open, but not a single door. It was two or even more. The way the car was parked was horizontal, so I couldn't see if there were more passengers who had opened doors, but one thing I knew was my body was instantly in fight-or-flight mode. And at that point, I knew that I was right in thinking that something was extremely wrong. I ran for my f***ing life, didn't look back to see who or what exited the car, flung myself into my own car and peeled out the instant that I could. I drove a rather busted ride at that point, so most of my mirrors had fallen off, giving me very little option to peer back as I drove away. Once I got to a safe distance, I blocked and deleted her number. I believe to this day she had cheated on her boyfriend and he somehow found out, wanted to beat me up, or worse. Definitely heard things in the news about how people lash out because of their fiancé wife has cheated and I didn't want to just be another statistic or story on the 10 o'clock news. I now don't even believe that she was in the car at the park. Probably two plus dudes who intended to do serious harm on me. I was kind of surprised how fast I can run when I actually try to. I consider this a major bullet dodged and please believe I don't use that app anymore. And I would warn you all to beware when you're seeking out singles in your area. This happened to me about 15 years ago, and I still don't have an explanation for why it unfolded the way that it did. So my buddies and I went fish camping at a pretty remote lake off of a 4x4 trail about two hours from home. There were four of us total, all men, with me being the smallest at about 200 pounds. That's important for later. The camping spot had great fishing, as it has a nice deep spot with lots of trout right next to it but the campground itself was rather rough. It's on the side of a steep hill with barely enough room for tents and a small fire ring. It's accessible by a rough, steep, winding 100-yard trail from where you park your 4x4 above the camp. We had a great day drinking beers and catching our limit on nice-sized trout. After it got dark, we made a small fire and just bullshit the night away. It was actually a great time. But suddenly, and without warning, there was another person at our campsite, shining a blinding light in our eyes from about 10 to 20 yards away. We didn't hear this person approach whatsoever. This person announced themselves as a sheriff. One of my friends asked, Are you a, our county's name, sheriff? The stranger didn't respond to the question. Instead, just shined a light in each of our faces and then said, Have a good night, before walking off. We sat there dumbfounded asking each other, What the hell was that? After a moment or two of silence, curiosity eventually got the better of me, so I lit up this person with my stupidly powerful flashlight. He was about 50 yards away at this point, right before a crest and bend of the trail, just before he would have been out of sight. We all saw it. It was just some dude in a flannel shirt and jeans. I yelled, That is not a fucking sheriff. He must have heard my exclamation, as we all saw him start moving quickly for a second before he was out of sight. A few moments later, we heard an engine start, and that was that. Strange we didn't hear the vehicle earlier, but 
I guess I can attribute that to being drunk and loud ourselves. Now what makes this situation actually kind of scary is, what if it wasn't four big dudes that he had approached? What if it was a single person? Or a couple? What would he have intended to do to them? Should we have chased after this person after we realized the situation? Debatable. Should we have reported this to the actual sheriff's department? Absolutely. But sadly, we never did. We finished our camping weekend, on edge and looking over our shoulders each night, not sure if we were going to have a run-in with that man once again. We never did, but like I said, over a decade later, I'm still wondering what that was all about. When I was about 9 or 10, I was invited to a classmate's birthday party at a water park attraction or something along those lines. All of us kids were about the same age. It was a small class of about 20 kids and I'm pretty sure that everyone was invited. Just to clarify here, I'm a boy. Anyway, I got kind of separated from everyone at some point and it was just me and this girl alone. I wasn't particularly close friends with her but I did know her as she was in my class. To describe the location we were in, it was a tunnel that connected the main wave pool to a lazy river. There wasn't really anybody else there, just me and her. When all of a sudden, she lunged at me without warning. She grabbed my head and held it underwater. I was a pretty skinny kid and she was bigger than me and a bit of a tomboy if I remember correctly. About 20 seconds went by as I furiously tried to free myself, but she wasn't letting go. Fight or flight, plus mass panic took over, and I eventually fought my way free from her grasp. I was coughing and sputtering water the entire time as I emerged. I remember looking at her, and being just in plain shock. I think I began to ask why she did that when she lunged at me again. She again attempted to hold my head underwater for what felt like a lifetime before I fought my way free once more. Both times, I genuinely thought I was going to drown as I fought against her with every bit of my strength. I couldn't swim at this time, but the water in the lazy river and tunnel was just maybe chest high. I began to backpedal away from her. She was giggling as if it was funny and had this kind of crazed look and grin on her face. I couldn't just climb out to escape as it was a tunnel, so I had to try to get out of there. As I was backpedaling, she followed me step for step. I did my best to make sure that I kept distance between us, so she couldn't lunge at me again, but she was gaining on me. I actually managed to reason with her. I was so scared of her that I was babbling. I tried to distract her by suggesting we go down a water slide together. It worked as I could see her thinking about it and she halted her chase of me. I managed to exit the tunnel and water, and she slowly followed but seemed a bit unsure. I immediately felt more safe as I was out of the water and could see other people about as we headed towards the slides. I kept talking all the way up about how fun slides were, etc., but she didn't really speak at all and had a really strange look on her face the entire time. Anyway, after we went down the slides... I caught up with my friends and just stuck with them the rest of the time, as I was still a bit shaken up. 
I never told them about this as it was a bit embarrassing to admit that a girl had tried to drown me, and as a kid I was worried that I'd get teased for it. But fast forward to adulthood, I learned that my tomboy assailant turned out to be a lesbian. She got with her partner who had two or three kids from a previous relationship with a man. Turns out they would torture the kids and eventually unalived one of them. She is currently serving a life sentence in prison. I told my friends about this swimming pool incident after hearing about her crimes and I'm pretty sure that they thought I was just bullshitting as none of them took me seriously at all. Blows my mind kind of to think that I may have been victim number one had I not thrashed and fought the way that I did. Nonetheless, it's a bit crazy to think back as she obviously was a genuine psychopath. And if I hadn't fought her off to escape and convinced her to go down the slide with me, I genuinely think that she would have finished the job in that water park tunnel when we were kids. A good lesson for kids about stranger danger. This took place about five years ago. I was 14 at the time and absolutely loved puzzles. I wanted to buy one but didn't have much money. I ventured out with my sister, who was 12 at the time, short and petite for her age, looking for random toy stores that sold off-brand and cheap toys. We found one in an area of our town that didn't have much activity around. It didn't really look like a toy store in the front, and when you walked in, you could see the shelves full and look like they hadn't been rearranged in years. It kind of seemed like the store didn't really have a reason to be there as I think back. There was a man at the cash register who noticed our coming in. The man looked like the average person you'd expect at the front of a toy store. In his 30s or 40s, slightly heavy set. Looked like he had an affinity for toys and comics himself. I didn't really get a weird vibe from him or the store. It was just empty. So we look around and there are no puzzles to be seen. I approach the man and I ask him, Hey, I can't seem to find any puzzles. Do you know if there are any that I'm missing? The man answers, Oh yeah, there are puzzles, but I keep them downstairs. I didn't see any downstairs when we entered the store, but I was like, sure, show me the puzzles. This was like the third store we had tried, so at this point, I just wanted to find my toy, you guys. The man walks around the counter and to this door that you wouldn't notice unless it was pointed out. He opened it and revealed a steep staircase going down. At the bottom was a plain wall. You would have to go left or right to enter whatever the room was. It didn't seem like there were any toys down there being that there was no signage and it also looked rather dark down there. What stood out to me just as much was if there really was a downstairs, wouldn't this door already be open? At that moment, I felt my stomach drop and the get the F out of there man feeling emerge. The man was looking right at me, waiting for my sister and I to walk down in front of him. I was like, uh, well... Oh, my mom is calling me. I'll be right back. My sister and I bolted from the store and I haven't been close to it ever since. Maybe there were puzzles down there, but maybe there weren't. I was definitely not going to stay and find out. I think it's also important to note in situations like these, 
that if I was right and that man did have bad intentions, even just a single step closer to the stairs, and he could have easily pushed me down, and at that moment, there would have been no possible escape. I suppose the moral of the story, don't go down random stairs, y'all. Stay safe. This story happened to me rather recently, and I feel like this community will enjoy hearing about it. So my boyfriend and I are currently hiking in the Pacific Crest Trail in California. It's extremely common to catch rides along the trail, what some may call hitchhiking. Most people who live in towns bordering the trail are fairly kind, safe-seeming folk, but my emphasis on the seeming part. Well, we found ourselves a little lost after trying to take a less-traveled alternative trail to avoid the snow-covered main trail. After lots of struggle and practically bushwhacking, we made our way down the hill and accidentally ended up on someone's property. Now, this property is big. It's an extremely large ranch with a few different buildings visible. We tried to skedaddle as fast as possible off of the property, but one of the ranch dogs saw us and the owner came up in a golf cart. He was a burly man from what I could see, tall and grizzled, looked like a typical example of a California cowboy, wearing an oversized flannel and tattered jeans along with his worker's boots. Nothing here appeared to stand out as shady. I explained that we accidentally got lost hiking, apologized, and he said that it happens often, and he was super understanding about the whole situation. He asked if we wanted a ride into town, since he was about to leave anyway. Given how common hitching is on trail, and how nice he was, we accepted, and he drove us right to town. On the ride there, he told us he used to be in the DEA, and had participated in more shootouts than people fighting in the army. Weird thing to mention, but okay, I guess we didn't think much of it. I noticed my boyfriend was really quiet throughout and thought that that was odd as well. As soon as we hop out of the car, my boyfriend grabs our backpacks and tells me to check my phone. He had sent me an article about the guy we just got a ride from, and how this guy was involved in his girlfriend's disappearance a few years back, including a suspicious death on the ranch property not too long after. Apparently, his girlfriend went missing two weeks after signing property transfers of her ranch over to him. She was never found, and the suspicious death on the ranch was a worker who got killed by an ATV, but toxicology showed that it was a meth overdose. Given his DEA background, I found that part specifically suspicious. Also, after a little bit more digging, we found that that man was on a certain registry for groping two women on a snowmobile tour that happened to eclipse his property. Wild times on the Pacific Crest Trail. My boyfriend and I are 100% okay, but still shaken to this day the fact that we got a hitch from a possible murderer. And after reading the information we did, I think he did it. And while I'm sure that you get the idea, and this probably goes without saying, be careful who you get rides from, even if they're friendly. This happened to me two summers back, while I was house-sitting out in California for an older couple I had met at a conference for work. 
It had seemed like a dream scenario. The couple wanted a vacation in Hawaii for two weeks, but didn't want to board their cats. And I had been chatting with them about wanting to visit California again, where they happened to live. Because I had loved it the first time I had gone, and we figured that we could mutually benefit if I came out and house sat for them. So I flew out, they showed me around for a few days, taught me how to care for the cats, two of them. One was a typical house cat, personable to a degree, but otherwise independent and wanting to be left alone. The other, extremely shy, and one that I barely saw, which will actually be an important detail for later. They showed me their house plants, told me when to water them, gave me access to their house and cars. These people were really generous, actually. And before I knew it, I had dropped them off at the airport and was on my own. At first, it was really the dream vacation. I was staying in Oakland, making my own adventures by crossing the bridge into San Francisco, Sonoma for the wine country, down to Monterey for views of the ocean, things like that. In the mornings, I could walk out the front door and shortly be hiking the paths surrounding nearby Mount Diablo, as I was just ultra content with the world at that time. I was so enamored by the area that I had actually started looking into taking some steps to move out there even. But then one day, about halfway through my final week there, when I got back to the house, I had this really odd feeling that I just couldn't shake, almost like I shouldn't head inside. I did shake it off, went inside anyway, because it was getting late and I needed to put out dinner for the cats. Once I was inside, though, I forced myself to ignore how off I felt, made some food for myself, went to bed, and was shocked to find the shy cat hiding under my bed and crying out. This was the first time I had even seen her up close. The entire time I had been there, up to that point, she never left my host's bedroom unless she didn't realize that I was around. Again, I ignored that weird feeling and just assumed that she had decided I was okay and went to bed. I did start locking my bedroom door that night, though. I also remember that about halfway through that night, I thought I heard someone walking around in the gravel outside of my window. But after listening for a bit, I didn't hear anything else and just drifted back to sleep. The day after, in the morning, I still felt a little odd, but kept up with my plans for the day. I drove out to a little music festival in Sonoma and went clothes shopping. Had an overall great day in my approximation. When I got back to the house, though, I found the front door locked in a way that I hadn't left it. Basically, my host never locked the deadbolt, only the lower, second lock and that's the only lock my key worked on, so I never messed with the deadbolt. But it was certainly locked. So I had to call my hosts and find the hide-a-key, which, to their credit, safety-wise, was buried like a whole foot underneath a bush outside, and it had definitely not been unearthed for a long time. So I used that, went inside, and kept the key with me just in case it happened again. And wouldn't you know, it did but with a different door this time. I'd stepped out into the garage to get a drink, and when I turned around to go back inside the house, the door had shut and was now locked. I could use my normal key on the door, but I was still pretty bewildered. My own cats are whack, 
so I think in my mind I was trying to come up with a way that these cats could be locking me out of the house. But even at my most creative, I was coming up empty. I decided I must have been misunderstanding how the locks worked, and just wrote it off and started checking, double-checking, and triple-checking locks when I went out of the house or into the garage. That night when I went to bed, that really awful feeling of unease was still there, and so was the shy cat under my bed, who was clearly unhappy to see me but also wouldn't leave my side. But again, I just locked my bedroom door and fell asleep. The next morning, I felt awful. Nausea, body ache, no desire to leave the house, so I decided to stay in and Netflix for the day. This vacation stay was like a full two weeks, so I didn't feel like I was in any hurry to get all my touristy things done. But as the day went on, I started to feel the feeling of wrongness again, and it morphed into feeling incredibly... watched? Around mid-afternoon, it got to the point that I was so uneasy that, even feeling awful, I decided to get out of the house for a bit to shake it off. I was getting a bit low on food, so I went to the grocery store and bought a couple of items that I didn't think would hurt my stomach. As I began to leave the checkout area, the cashier said the generic, have a great evening, and I just instantly started crying, shocking myself and the poor cashier because I had just had this intrusive thought that said, you might be the last person to ever say that to me. When I got to my car, I was still crying, and my entire body was telling me not to drive back to the house. I couldn't not, though. I didn't want to neglect the cats, so I drove back, parked in the driveway, and convinced myself after about half an hour of hyping to just go open the front door. Once I did that, I thought I would get over it and be able to go in and at least feed the cats. Then maybe I'd go get a hotel room after, but my body physically would not let me inside. It was like I was stuck in the entryway. I then made a deal with myself. I would yell into the house saying I had already called the police and that they were on their way. In panic logic, I figured that would make anyone in the house leave. So I faced the inside, looking down the hallway towards the bedrooms, and I did just that. The second I had finished saying, they're almost here, so if you want to avoid being arrested, you need to leave now. The light in my host's room turned on, and I heard some banging. I immediately hightailed it back to the car, called the police for real this time, and proceeded to have a mental breakdown while talking to the dispatcher. Once they got there, they checked the house but didn't find a soul. But the double doors in my host's bedroom were left wide open, and there was a pile of food wrappers in the corner behind the blinds, so they said it looked like someone had been there. What makes it so scary to me is that nothing was taken and that based on the shape of the house, that would have been the perfect vantage point to see me in the living room as I stayed home sick. To explain this, the house was in an L shape, and from the windows into the garden that were in my host bedroom, you could see into the living room absolutely unencumbered. Also, the minute the police were gone, the shy cat was right back in my host bedroom, and I didn't see her again until I left to go back home several days later. So basically, I think the intruder had been there at least two days, forcing the cat to choose between two strangers, 
and leading her to choose the one that was at least a little less strange. It messed me up pretty badly, especially because they didn't catch the person, and truly they didn't seem to have the desire to look. I still had three extra days in that house from that point. Nothing else odd happened, and I didn't feel anything off the rest of the time I was there, but the damage was done. I've never felt completely safe in a home without doing a complete search before bed since. But I am extremely glad my gut spoke up. I guess I'd rather have some residual anxiety than whatever the alternative is. So whoever was in my host's house for at least a few days with me, watching me, let's please never meet. I remember back to when I was 15 or 16, I used to sneak over to my boyfriend's house, who lived around the block from me. I wasn't allowed to date him at that time because family drama, crazy stepdad and all. I remember leaving his house one evening to go meet up with friends. It's summertime in the Midwest, maybe about 7pm, still light out but the sun is definitely beginning to set. In my town, a bunch of kids would meet at this convenience store that was more or less in the middle of our tiny town. It was a super cute town by the way. All the houses looked the same, bungalow style. Trees lined the nicely manicured lawns and no matter where you are, you know someone that lives on a street or two away. Well, I was walking maybe five blocks away from my destination and I was alone. I remember crossing the street and seeing a young man emerge from one of the streets perpendicular from where I'm crossing. As my foot hits the sidewalk, this puts us on opposite sides of the street of the same block. We're now walking in the same direction, me about 50 yards ahead of him on the right side of the street, him trailing me on the left side of the street. Although we're the only two on this stretch of road, it's not weird necessarily, but my Nana always taught me to be suspicious of pretty much everyone. Yeah, I know it's not a healthy way to be, but this is what generational trauma does to a person. I glance over my shoulder a few times, making sure that he's aware that I'm aware that he's there. I do this out of habit, as I stay on my way, not really concerned at this point. But a block later, he crosses the street. I hear his footsteps begin to speed up as he does, going from a walk much closer to a run. I can't describe how or why, but this is when all my senses went to high alert. I take another look over my shoulder, and the distance between us has shrunk from 50 yards down to no more than 10. He's close enough that I can pretty much see all of his features. His shabby build, his pointy nose, his medium length, greasy looking hair. But what really struck fear into me was the look of his cold, dark eyes beaming right at me. I feel like this is when I should tell you that I'm not even five feet tall, and at this point in my life, I was well under 100 pounds. Tiny, you could say. So at this point, I grab my phone and pretend to call someone, yelling so he can hear me. I'm coming up the stairs right now. Will you open the door for me? Hurriedly, obviously panicked, I dart up some random person's stairs to their front door. When I look back once more, he was right at the base of the stairs where the sidewalk meets the property. He didn't say a word, but his eyes and the entire look on his face screamed, F*** you. This telekinetic message only lasted a moment, 
but it lingered far longer as he paused where he was before continuing to walk away. I crept down the stairs and snuck behind some bushes, peering back and forth to see if he was gone. Once I was sure that he had, I called my boyfriend and ran the last few blocks to meet up with my friends. Maybe it was nothing, but my gut has always told me differently. I still remember that guy's face, and from time to time, I watch the news, wondering if I'll see that face cross the screen, possibly for committing a crime against somebody else. Hasn't happened just yet, but I always find myself wondering. And while that part of me will always wonder, there's a larger part of me that hopes that I never see that man's face ever again. I'm a guy in my 30s now, but this happened about a decade ago, with the onset of Tinder and other swiping apps. I was new to the game, mostly just wanted to get some action, but totally naive and not realizing what kind of Pandora's box can be opened when meeting strangers online. I match with this cute girl, we flirt, message over a couple of days, and I get the vibe that she's DTF. We had plans for a few days out, but the day before? She booty texts me late at night. She says she's been drinking, sends some revealing texts, and invites me over to her house. It's late, and I'm definitely only thinking with the lower half of my body at this point. She sends me an address that's kind of in a sketchy part of town. Whatever, not my first shady booty call. I drive over, and as I get closer to this house, I text her to let her know that I'm here. It's a weird, semi-developed neighborhood, and the house only looks partially finished. I do see a light on in the basement, but definite weird vibes. As I text her about the layout and confirming that I'm in the right spot, she tells me not to worry and instructs me to the back of the house where she's left the door open for me. I'm feeling a little off, but I'm obviously committed and rather horny. I get out of the car and I feel the most intense sense of dread that I've ever felt in my life. As I'm catching my bearings, I turn around to hear running from behind me, multiple sets of footsteps. My balls shrunk into ovaries at that point as I ran back to the car, opened the door, and flung myself back in. I was just able to lock the door when I see three figures, all wearing creepy, full-face masks, two of them banging on my doors and windows, one with a huge bat in the process of taking it to my windshield. Huge crack. I dropped the keys as I tried to start the car. I was absolutely petrified. I got the key in, turned the ignition, slammed on the gas. As I took off, I hit one of the guys with my side mirror as he fell to the ground with a plop. I almost ran into a street pole for my troubles. After recovering from my heart attack while driving, I raced home and spent the next 24 hours replaying the whole thing over and over again. I never told anyone in my circle about this. I made up a story about a deer hitting my car to explain the windshield. Guess I felt dumb and desperately wanted to pretend I wasn't really that gullible. But in actuality, I really was. And to this day, I'm just glad that I made it out of there.
This was an experience I had alongside my BFF in high school. This was around 2006 in rural upstate New York. We had met in the third grade and are still friends to this day, both 27 now. Let me give you some background information. My friend, B, and I became instant friends when we met in third grade and were inseparable from that moment. We frequented each other's homes, so much so that her mom set up a guest room as my room. I had toys, clothes, pictures. I mean, everything that I needed was there. I was family. Pictures of B and I hung on the walls of her home, owned by her very proud mother, Shelly. Shelly always wanted two daughters and loved me so much that that's what she considered me, her second daughter. Now on to the meat of the story. Again, this incident took place when B and I were sophomores in high school. Her mother was divorced and dated a few different men, meeting some off sites like eHarmony. She had been speaking to a man for a few weeks, gushing about how manly and charming he was. She was really excited and always showed us their profiles before she decided to go on an actual date with one of these men. She always would say, I need my daughter's stamps of approval. One night, she called us to her room and showed us this man she had been talking all about. His profile was simple, as one would imagine for a middle-aged man in 2006. His headline read, Looking for a strong mother. I made a joke about this odd placement for caps and just how strange a way to start out, but we moved forward. It told of his metalwork background, his love of cold steel, and his work in a foundry that kept his icy heart just warm enough. I was honest and told her that it sounded off, but he was handsome, sporting black, well-groomed hair, a beard, strong jaw, ice blue eyes, and relatively fit body for a 40-something-year-old male. I did stress on the weird vibe, though. B joked how Shelley always picked out the antisocial ones, and we laughed knowing this wasn't wrong. Shelley had brought home some weird stories, but what do you expect when meeting men online? We told her to go for it, so they planned on dinner. It was a haul for him, about a two-hour drive. He was driving to our location, where they would then take one car into town. B and I helped Shelley pick out her outfit, helped her with her hair and makeup, and then went back upstairs so she could have some time to herself before the long night. We headed upstairs where B and I were painting a wall in her room, just listening to music and cutting up. He just let himself in the house like no big deal, came on upstairs without saying a word. No knocking, no doorbell, the dogs didn't bark, nothing. So we get spooked, jump and scream, nearly shit our pants a little when we hear a man start talking from behind us. We don't know how long he had been in the house. We don't know how long he stood behind us without speaking. But when he did speak, we shook. Well, well, well. I didn't know I was getting a two-for-one deal, he said quietly in a gravelly, low voice. He chuckled as we stood there in shock of the stranger in our presence. He sauntered over to us like a man on a Sunday walk. The smell of cigarettes filled the room as if Rod Serling himself was standing in the corner, explaining our situation to the audience for our own personal episode of The Twilight Zone. Right then, I noticed how much this guy looked like the guy in the pictures Shelley showed us, except he had salt and pepper 
not jet black hair, and his eyes were not ice blue, but black. Not brown, black. It looked like this guy was 100% pupil. Are you... I was interrupted by Shelly shouting, Who got hurt? She must have thought we were horsing around and one of us got hurt. This was normal for us because we goofed around a lot. She was jolted at the sight of this man blocking her from us. He turned around just as soon as she reached the top of the stairs, held his arms out and said in a way less low tone than he used earlier, Shelly, you look beautiful. I knocked and no one answered. I hope it's okay I let myself in. These are your girls? They're beautiful. Just like their mommy. I'll never forget how he said, Mommy. It felt dirty. B and I both side-eyed each other and stepped down from our stepladders. We were both very in tune with each other. If I felt weird, I know she did. And we both felt the odd air of the room. Shelley glanced away from him and at us, who were behind him, looking at her with wide eyes, both kind of shaking our heads side to side in disbelief. Shelley looked back at him. This exchange only took a few seconds, but seemed like an eternity. She forced a smile at him and said, Oh, I'm sorry, next time just ring the bell. I'll come open the door. He nodded and walked towards her with open arms and hugged her like they had been the oldest of friends. She looked at us as they hugged and just kind of rolled her eyes to show what she thought of his excuse. She proceeded to tell him that it was not appropriate as she led him down the stairs and we heard him apologize over and over again. B and I instantly ran to our phones. We agreed to text her mom what he had just said to us so we could tell her without him knowing. We hit send and about 10 minutes later, we hear footsteps coming up the stairs. It was Shelly and she shut the door behind her, asking us if we're okay. She hugged us and told us she was sorry he made us feel uncomfortable. She explained to us that he said we reminded him of his girls and he didn't mean to scare us. We nodded and then she said they were leaving out for the date. We hugged her tightly, said be safe, and we would see her soon. As she headed down the stairs, B and I looked at each other. We both knew that something wasn't right, but were both speechless from the good scare we received from this dark man just about 15 minutes prior. We heard them walking and talking, heading towards the front door a few minutes later. Shelly shouted up the stairs that she loved us. We yelled back that we loved her and then heard the door shut. We instantly started talking over each other, saying the same things. He laid that charm on so thick as soon as he saw mom, B exclaimed. And did you see his eyes? What the fuck was that? He looks so much like the guy from the pictures, but just not quite. We both ruminated on our shared feelings about the stranger, his scent, his demeanor, his voice. He was like something out of a classic Stranger Danger advert. Again, we agreed to text Shelly how we felt. She thanked us, told us the date seemed to be going well, and she would let us know that she was safe every hour. B and I were just freaked out, and even more so that Shelly was not. It was like a weird spell he cast on her. It was odd, but we wanted to think the best for Shelly as she was excited about the guy. She texted us every hour until she got home. Her last text said, I'm okay, but officially freaked out and coming home now, so I'll see you guys soon. We got freaked and paced around until we saw headlights pull into the driveway. 
It had been about five hours since she left, and a painstaking hour since that last text. We were inside with the lights off watching through the side window, trying not to be seen when the motion sensor light flooded the yard and light fell onto the driveway. A truck flew into the driveway. The passenger side door flung open before the truck was even at a full stop, and Shelly's feet were on the pavement just as fast. She waved at the driver, kind of jogged to the door wide-eyed. She reached the front door, turned and waved the truck off. She had her house key ready in the hand that she wasn't waving with. She unlocked the door and slid inside the safety of the house. Keep the lights off. Let's go upstairs, Shelly said as she locked the two deadbolts, as well as the chain. Not once looking at us, by the way. We headed up the stairs behind her, walked into B's room and looked out the window, down at the truck, still in park out front with the lights on and engine running. As we all stared at the truck, Shelly told us of the ordeal that she had gone through. Long story short, he had made reservations at the wrong restaurant, so he suggested that we go buy some food and have a picnic-style dinner at a local park. Shelly didn't do well outdoors. She was an office woman, so she declined. However, he had just driven so long to get here, and then he hit her with, you kind of owe me. And Shelly said that made her feel bad, knowing he drove over two hours. So when he mentioned that he had a vacation home he could cook for her at close by, she agreed. She said they got to the house, and it was nice enough. Log cabin near Bethel, New York, only about 30 minutes from our town. Shelly said he kept talking about how easy it was to get her alone. He also kept saying he liked strong mommies because they have such fight, but she caved. This made her skin crawl. This wasn't the man she thought it was. This also wasn't the man in the picture, and Shelly started to slowly realize this. Shelly then said that she asked for a ride home due to her feeling ill. He wasn't the happiest, but he complied and stopped cooking and started to look for his keys, the ones that she knew were in his pocket the entire time. He then started asking her about our girls, referring to myself and B. This freaked Shelly out so bad that she told him that she was going to have someone come and get her, and that he didn't like that, instantly finding his keys after that. Once they were out of the house and in the truck, the truck wouldn't start, so they had to move to his work truck. Shelly was visibly shaken and wouldn't take her eyes off the truck in the driveway as she spilled the story out. She said that there was a garage that he said they had to walk around the house to get into and that his work truck would be there. She said she felt she had no choice but to play it cool and just agree to go. She hopped out, walked around the house, and there was indeed another garage with a truck in it. The same truck we were all currently staring at, just sitting in the driveway. It smelled like bleach and metal, Shelly whispered. She told us on the way home he kept asking about us. What did we do that she didn't like? What got us spankings? What were the naughty things we got in trouble for? What would she do without us? And the one question to scare you out of your pants as a parent, would you sacrifice yourself for our girls? Shelly said she stared at him in awe and disbelief. And then he just laughed. She got more and more concerned as she noticed her surroundings in the back of the truck that she was riding home in. 
There were what she thought were chains in a bucket, sitting on the back floor, a duffel bag and a very large metal object that she wasn't quite sure of. This is when he started to pull out pictures on his little flip phone that he had of us. He must have found Shelly's Facebook, and he took pictures of our pictures and had them on his phone, waving it around telling Shelly what a good strong mommy she had been to us, and she should be proud of what she had accomplished. By this time, they were pulling into the driveway, and Shelly was done with his shit. She was just about finished with her story when we saw the truck lights turn off. Shelly immediately picked up the phone and dialed the sheriff, and told him quickly there was an unwelcome person outside of the home. Being in such a small town, the sheriff not only went to school and graduated with Shelly, but only lived three doors down. Just as we see this guy getting out of his truck with the duffel bag, we saw the sheriff whip up behind him. This man panicked and literally threw his duffel into his truck and tried to back into the sheriff to get out. When he realized he was blocked from the rear, he went through the yard. We couldn't believe our eyes. The truck peeled out, taking some of the lawn with it. The sheriff came to the door to check on us and told us he had units down the road waiting for the guy. We all shared a good collective cry and rejoiced in our safety. It did, however, create some paranoia issues in the next couple of weeks due to the fact we didn't know how long he was in the house when he just let himself in. Did he put cameras anywhere? Did he mess with food in the house to hurt someone? I mean, it was bad, but we did work through it. We never heard anything about him getting caught, and we did occasionally receive eerie messages on Facebook, two of which we knew were him, but we put that out of our minds. Haven't heard anything from or about him since about three months after this incident, when the last message was received. It's been about 16 years since the incident, but we still talk about it when we can. So old dude from eHarmony, let's never, ever meet again. This story of mine genuinely has me creeped out. It happened about nine years ago, and sometimes it'll randomly pop into my mind. But it always succeeds in giving me the shivers. So I was on an adult dating site, one of the fetish types. I know, don't judge me. I was just looking for some fun. Anyway, I was stupid and gave out more information than I should have. I was chatting with a guy, and he asked me at some point, what did I do for work? At the time, I was working at McDonald's, so I told him. He asked which one, to which I stupidly told him which one. We chatted off and on. We hadn't been chatting for too long as I remember, but I had also stupidly given him my phone number at some point. He would talk about how he wanted to meet me on my break and have some fun on my break. I told him no thanks. I don't bring my lifestyle to my job. Gotta keep some level of separation, right? Anyway, I checked my messages just before I was due to clock out of work. Luckily, I did. He mentioned that he was at my job and told me what he had ordered. I think it was a Big Mac meal, by the way. I was like, um, okay, well, don't expect me to do anything with you because I'm not interested. He then got upset and told me that he wasn't accepting the fact that I wasn't interested. I was scared because I had sent him a face picture of myself, but... I'd never received one from him, so I didn't even know who to be scared of. 
I really wasn't interested in this at this point. Now I had to thank my stars that I hadn't told him my work schedule, so he didn't know that I was about to clock out. So, after clocking out, I told one of my managers that I was on a dating site, and some guy just showed up to work. I have no idea what he looks like, and that I was going to hang out in the back in the break room for a bit. She didn't judge me, and was just like, oh, okay. I waited about half an hour before I left. I didn't have a car at the time and had to walk home, so I was afraid the whole way that he would see me and try to snatch me up into his car. Once again, luckily, no one followed me, so I did find myself in the clear. I don't remember if I instantly blocked him or if he just never messaged me, but I never heard from that guy again. I don't know if this really counts as all that creepy, but it does creep me out that some random person just decided that he would show up to my job and expect me to want to meet up with him. So yeah, now I just give vague responses as to where I work. I don't work in the same town I live in, so it would be hard to pinpoint my exact location. This experience opened my eyes and made me much more aware of the information that I give out to strangers. So, creepy guy, the one that I don't even know what you look like, let's never meet. <laughs> 